I'm glad you guys are here. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah 4. Middle school, if you guys want, y'all can slip out with Jeremy. Surprise, surprise. Y'all didn't think you were going to get to go. Perfect. All right, so Nehemiah, he uh, is, is in Jerusalem. He makes a tour of the walls, looks at the condition, recognizes they're not in great shape. He rallies the people to rebuild the walls. You can see they're on the screen. Some archaeologists have found what they called Nehemiah's Wall. Pretty substantial, eight feet thick, built really quickly. That's what Nehemiah and these guys are trying to do. They're trying to get this wall up as fast as they can, provide some defenses for their city, create a space where people can move in. It's a sign that God has restored them as a people. So all those things are going on. And as Nehemiah does that, it provokes opposition. There's some local folks who are foreigners. They're not Jews, but they're living in the area. They don't want to see the Jews get this wall rebuilt. And so chapter 4, which we'll look at today, it's about that opposition to Nehemiah's work. So we'll look at two different sections in chapter 4. Starting in verse 1, when Sambalat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates in the army of Samaria. He said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, even a fox climbing up on it would break down their wall of stones. Hear us, our God. This is Nehemiah's prayer. Hear us, our God, for we are despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Don't cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So Sambalat and the guys that oppose the wall, they're in a bit of a quandary. They don't want the wall rebuilt, but the king, Artaxerxes, he's given Nehemiah permission. So Nehemiah's got a sheet of paper that says, hey, we can rebuild this wall. And the, the, these guys that want it stopped, that don't want the wall rebuilt, they, they've got to figure out how do we navigate that. We don't want to defy the king. That's bad for us. But we don't want this wall rebuilt. So he uh, falls back on first. He tries taunting, ridicule, mockery, making fun of. Those were 400 B.C. insults. Even a fox would knock your wall over. That was a burn back in the day. So anyway, that's what they're saying. They're like, well, what you're doing is not going to work. It's feeble. This, it's, it's garbage. They're trying to discourage the people. For Sanballat, his hope is that the Jews quit. That's what he needs. He can't necessarily go at them directly, so what he needs is for them to decide to quit. And so he tries to discourage them by making fun of them, but it doesn't work. Nehemiah turns to the Lord in prayer, which is great. That's what we should do. The content of his prayer we'll talk about a little bit later. There's not a lot. That's not a model for us. But the people keep working. They don't get distracted or discouraged by the taunts. So, Sambalat increases the pressure. When Sambalat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, 
and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out, and there's so much rubble that we can't rebuild the wall. Also, our enemy said, Before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them, and we'll kill them and put an end to the work. When the Jews who lived near them, that's people who lived near the enemies, when they came and told us ten times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. After I looked things over, I stood up and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Fight for your families, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out, and we're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve as guards by day and as workers by night. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon, even when he went for water. So discouragement doesn't work. So now Sambalak goes for intimidation. You'll see a map there on the screen. Judah's in the middle, and every nation around them gets together and starts amassing their troops. The Samaritans to the north, Arabs to the south, the, the, uh, the Philistines, that's Ashdod, to the west, and the Ammonites to the east. So everybody is surrounding Jerusalem, and they're, they're cut off, and they're getting scared. They do have the sheet of paper that says, we can rebuild this wall. But you've paid, played rock, paper, scissors. Scissors beats paper. Those guys have swords, they have spears, and they have bow and arrows. They're going to win if there's a fight. Their paper is not going to do them a whole lot of good. Even if they could get somebody to the king, he's 900 miles away. Somebody ran 30 miles a day, which you're not. That's a marathon a day. It'd take you a month to get there. And then however long it takes the king to send back reinforcements. So the Jews literally are surrounded by their enemies and they're cut off from help. It's not a great situation for them. They're scared. They're nervous. It hasn't been that long ago that they were rebuilding the wall and they were forced to stop. Not Sambalat, but somebody like him had written a letter to the king and said they're rebuilding the wall and the king said shut it down. And a military uh, detachment came and shut the wall down. So They've got that in the back of their minds as well. Like they've seen this movie before and they're nervous. Even though they've got the paper that says it's okay. And then you compile that with the fact that, um, or compound that with the fact that they're, they're starting to get tired. They're working really, really fast. They're trying to get this wall done as quickly as they can. The archaeologist who found it says it shows evidence that they built it as fast as they could. 52 days we'll see at the end of Nehemiah or a couple of weeks. That's how long it took them to do it. It's a very intense time for them. But you've done a project before, you've been in a hurry, and you didn't do all the prep that was necessary. 
That's where they are. They didn't clear out all the rubble from the old wall before they started building the new one. And now they're running into some difficulties because they keep tripping over rocks. So they're scared, they're tired, and now they're getting frustrated because the work's getting a little bit more difficult. And so there's a very real possibility that they may quit. Throw in the towel. We're done. It's too hard. It's not worth the risk. And so Nehemiah takes up, makes a calculated decision. He knows best thing long-term, get this wall rebuilt. But if the people get discouraged and quit, we never get there. So he's willing to slow down progress on the wall in order to address at least the immediate threat of these surrounding nations. So he turns some of his, his builders into soldiers. He arms some of the guys. He places them around the wall. The wall everybody's spread out. Remember last week we saw everybody's working on a different section of the wall. So people are spread out over miles of wall. And so Nehemiah spreads out some, some guys and he gives them weapons. Two things. One, it makes the people who are working feel better. They can focus on their work because they don't always have to have an eye out as anybody attacking us. And two, it shows to Sambalat and the enemies of Israel, we're not, we're not going to quit. We're not rolling over and, and dying. We're, we're going to fight. And Sambalat pulls the plug. I don't know that he ever intended to attack them in the first place. If he were to attack the Jews, that would be defying the king. I'm not sure that he's willing to do that. And I would imagine the, the army of four different nations wouldn't have a hard time defeating these guys that had just gotten a sword in their hand. They weren't soldiers. They weren't trained. They had a weapon now. They didn't know how to use it. I'm sure they would have done their best. But it's not difficult for me to think that the, the armies of four nations wouldn't have any problem overrunning the Jews at that point. So I think the fact that they pulled back probably showed that it was, it was just a threat. He was trying to intimidate them, but the Jews, they didn't know that at the time. So he pulls back, and then Nehemiah makes some permanent changes. Again, this is a very intense time, 52 days of a lot of tension and really hard work. And he makes a few changes for the duration of the building project. He's got some guys that are attached to him, kind of like his leadership team, and half of those guys he pulls off the wall, and he says, y'all are going to be guards. You're going to watch out for everybody. Again, that's going to make everyone feel better while they're working, that they know some people are looking out for them. And then he arms everybody. He turns every builder into a soldier. So a part of your, there were people and their job was to clear the rubble. So they had a basket in one hand and a sword in the other, which would make you feel better. Those guys, they had to pick up the rocks from the old wall, put them in their basket, then take them outside the wall and dump them. So they're pretty risky. They're exposed. So giving them a sword is going to make them feel better about their job. The guys that are building the wall takes two hands to lay the block so they get a sword on their side. But again, they've got these guys who are stationed around who are looking out for them. Nehemiah, in my mind, he's kind of making a circuit, checking on everybody, encouraging everybody. He's got someone with him who has a trumpet. So they're all spread out trying to get the wall done as quickly as they can. But if they see someone coming to attack, you blow the trumpet and everybody rallies to the trumpet. So we can be spread out for the work and then we can be concentrated for defense if needed. And then he also tells the men, he says, y'all need to spend the night here. Not very many people lived in Jerusalem because it wasn't safe. And so you've got guys commuting in and out, no headlights, no street lights. So they're walking and they need light to do that. So you're losing time every morning and every evening to men commuting to and from their house. So saying stay here, it maximizes the time you can build 
helps you get the job done quicker, and it also increases the pool of people who can guard the city. And so he does both of those things. And the whole time, again, this I, Nehemiah is a part of it. He's not a part. He's not aloof. He's a, a, an incredible leader. He's in the midst with the people, and he says, we're, we're on alert all the time. We never take our clothes off. We're always ready to fight if that's what needs to happen. And again, it's very intense, but it's a very brief period of time. We said last week that what we see spiritually, uh, or excuse me, what we see physically in the Old Testament, we often see spiritually in the New Testament. So we talked about walls. Nehemiah is rebuilding these walls of Jerusalem. We said there are walls in our city as well. These major institutions that influence a community and the people who live there. And we named seven, the government, legal, complex, education, church with a capital C, family, business, arts, media, culture, science, medicine. Those institutions influence a community. And we said God's called us to work on those walls. They're not completely destroyed, but they're broken down in some places. And God has called us to work there. And so we said, look at where, where do you already spend your time? That's an indication of the one, the two, the three walls where God wants you to focus. For some of you, that language of walls is not, doesn't resonate. So maybe people group is better. You think in terms of groups of people. People group is exactly what it sounds like. It's a group of people with a common characteristic, middle school boys or women who've had a miscarriage, whatever it is. And that may resonate with you, but it's the same concept. It's this idea that where you're spending your time it's most likely that the people or the, the place where God is asking you to work. If our, calling, if our calling is the what, the wall or the people group, that's the where that God wants us to live out our calling. And as you begin to do that, and as I begin to do that, just like Nehemiah, we're going to face opposition. There's going to be resistance. There's going to be pushback. For many of us, when things get difficult, our assumption is that God is no longer with us. Well, if God was with me, then this would be easier. He would be making a way. He would be opening doors. This, there, would be more, uh, there would be more fruit. The results would come more quickly. I wouldn't be so tired. None of those things are true. We have an enemy, and he is actively opposing the will and the work of God. And as you begin to engage in the place where God has called you to work, you're going to meet resistance. And from Nehemiah 4, we can learn a few things about how to deal with that. First, we need to identify our enemy. So for Nehemiah, it was Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem and the people who were part of their nations. He could look across the way and say, those are my enemies. That's not the case for us. Ephesians 6 says our enemies are not flesh and blood. Our ultimate enemy is the devil and the demons that work for him. That's our enemy. What gets tricky for us is oftentimes there are people who get in our way, who actively oppose what we're trying to do. There are people who reject. There are people who say no. There are people who undermine. There's people who hurt. There are people who actively provoke or promote unrighteous agendas. And it can be easy for us to make those people our enemies. We don't get to do that. People, we can say, maybe the, the, this may help. Think of humans as your opposition. Those are people who are opposing you. But they're still loved by God. He still desires that none perish. 
And so what Nehemiah prayed in Nehemiah 4, that's a, that's a fine Old Testament prayer. He prayed curses on his enemies. He said, God, don't forgive them. Don't blot out their sins. Everything that they're trying to do to us, you do to them. And that's perfectly acceptable Old Testament prayer. You don't live there anymore, and neither do I. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, hate your enemies. I say, love them. Pray for them. Don't curse them. Bless them. Forgive them as many times as they sin against you. We experience human opposition, but we don't curse them. We have to figure out how to pray, how to love, how to bless, how to forgive. Because God, until they die, God desires for those people who are actively opposing his will, he, he desires for them to be reconciled to him. All of us were enemies of Jesus at some point. If he smited all of his enemies, then this room is empty. And so for all of us, we need to recognize, yes, those people, like, they're terrible. It's awful. They're jerks, whatever. They're not the enemy. Love, pray for, bless, forgive. Our enemy is the enemy, the devil. And we need to keep those two things separate. How do we deal with him, with our true enemy? You don't pray for him. You don't bless him. You don't forgive him. What do you do with him? According to Nehemiah, we can see a few things. First is we need to recognize his tactics. That'll help us a lot. With Sambalat, he tried to discourage and he tried to intimidate. The devil does the same thing for us. He tries to discourage and he tries to intimidate. But I think there's some other things that he also, some other weapons that he also uses. Part of it is recognizing what is his ultimate goal. Sambalat, his goal was to keep the wall from being rebuilt. Nehemiah could keep that in mind. He's just trying to keep us from rebuilding this wall. What is the devil trying to do in your life? Steal, kill, and destroy. Flesh that out a little bit. God wants you to be faithful, and he wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to be faithful. He wants you to abide in him. He wants you to love him and love people. He wants you to grow in relationship with him. He wants you to become conformed into the image of Jesus. He wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to, to produce good things. Uh, you've ridden a, in a boat before, the wake, the waves that are left behind after a boat has been past a place. Think about your wake. Look behind you. That's the fruit in your life. He, God wants you to be fruitful, and he wants you to be faithful. So what the enemy wants is for you to be neither of those things. And he can't necessarily come at you directly. He can't separate you from the love of God in Jesus. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. He can't, he can't snatch you away from Jesus. He can't pull you out of Jesus' grip. He can't do that. So what he needs you to do is he needs you to quit. And he needs me to quit. It's the same thing Sambalat needed Nehemiah to do. He couldn't go directly at him because he had permission from the king to rebuild the wall. So what he needed was for the Jews to quit. The enemy cannot separate you from the love of God in Jesus. He ultimately can't thwart the will of God. The most he can do is delay. But he can't ultimately thwart it. Read Revelation 21 and 22. It all comes together. Creation will be restored. Everything that opposes God will be destroyed. 
He can't stop. Those chapters are literally already written. The most he can do is delay what is inevitable. In the meantime, he tries to discourage us. He, he wants us to quit. He wants us to throw in the towel. How does he do that? Where we live, I think one of his primary weapons is distraction. He tries to distract us. Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. And so what the enemy says is, well, if God wants you to fix your eyes on Jesus, I want you to fix your eyes on anything that's not Jesus. And for most of us, it's not bad things. It's good and necessary things, but we focus on them. Our spouse, our family, our career, politics, sports, our hobbies, whatever it is. Anything that's not Jesus, if we fix our eyes on that, that's a win for the devil. God says, fix your eyes on my son. And if our eyes are fixed anywhere else, we're being disobedient to the Lord. We're playing into the schemes of the devil. I read this uh, article on the Harvard Business Review. They had a couple of psychologists do a study in 2019. And their goal was, how how do they make workers more productive? And so they were thinking about external environment and how distracting our external environment is. Phones and uh, all of the smart watches and the, all the buzzing and the beeping and the notifications that we get that cause workers to become less productive. They lose focus. And they did this study and they realized, yes, those things are true, but the, the root of distraction is actually in our minds. So they said for every hour, so every 60 minutes that we're awake, our minds wander 28 of those minutes. <laughs> That's not good. 28 out of 60 minutes, we're daydreaming. Some of you are doing it right now. <laughs> Which is, we do it. Our minds wander. It's difficult for us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. And yes, we, have a distra- we live in a, in, a, in a distracted age. There's lots of things that compete for our attention, but even a blind man can lust. Like we can't manage our environment. We can't manage our environment to the point that we're not distracted anymore, unless you're going to go live in a cave. And even that's not going to work because the distractions are in here. So what does it look like for us to fix our eyes on him, to recognize one of the primary weapons the enemy uses in your life and my life is to distract me is to get me looking at anything that's not Jesus for a prolonged period of time. I wish there were tips and tricks. I don't know any. It's a process over time. Jeremy Morris, our student pastor, if you spend 10 minutes with him, he's going to tell you to read Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. Great book. Guy was a dishwasher in a monastery. And over time, he learned, how do I stay focused on God even when I'm doing these menial tasks? It's an inspiring book. won't take you any time to read it. So you may want to pick that up. Beyond that, for me, it's, there's just a mindset shift. There's, a, there's a, an internal understanding that says I need to keep my eyes fixed on him. And I can't, I can't pray all the time. Like, I got I to gotta work. I take care of my family. There's things I want to do and need to do. So I can't stay in my little prayer room all the time. So how do I do that? I wear contacts and glasses, and so the image for me is if I've got focus on Jesus or focus on other things, rather than shifting from one to the other, if I can do this, 
And when I'm looking at these other things, if I can look at them through the lens of Jesus, then I feel like that's okay. I'm moving in the right direction. So if I, my contacts or my glasses, if those are Jesus lenses, then when I'm doing my job or running errands or hobby, I don't have any hobbies, whatever those things are, if I was doing those things, I'm doing them through the lens of Jesus. So I've, I've not taken my gaze off of him even as I'm engaged in these other things. That may sound super spiritual. I don't know what else to do. And so for me, it's, just, it's, a, it's an awareness issue is where it starts. It's beginning by saying, Holy Spirit, you got to show me the places where I'm distracted and the things that are distracting me. And for some of us, that's a scary prayer because we think, well, if it distracts us, he's going to tell me to get rid of it. He's not going to tell you to get rid of your spouse. He's not going to tell you to get rid of your kids. Most likely, he's not going to tell you to quit your job. He's going to show you how to engage in those things while keeping your eyes fixed on him. And that may, it may look different for you than it does for me. But that mental picture of saying, what glasses am I wearing, has been really helpful for me as I try to grow in this area. Maybe it would be helpful for you. What underlies all of the schemes of the enemy is deception. So when we think about how to fight him, the, the way we fight deception is with the truth. Nehemiah prayed, and we pray also. And we pray for the Holy Spirit to guide us into the truth. That's part of his job. Holy Spirit, lead me into the truth. Show me where I'm deceived. We all are. The Bible says all of us, we see dimly. There are places where we miss it. It's grace for God to show us where we're deceived. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, show me where I'm deceived. Recognize the enemy is an incredibly effective liar. He's the father of lies. He masquerades as an angel of light. He does not have a pointy tail and a pitchfork. He looks really, really good. And the things that he says to us sound really, really good. And in Genesis 3, he's described as crafty. That is a master manipulator. He's perfected the art of leading people astray, which doesn't mean be scared. It means rely on the resources that God has given you in me, chiefly the Holy Spirit living within us. I've told y'all before, my first job, I was a bank teller. And on counterfeit money day, instead of bringing in all of the good counterfeits, they brought in a whole box of real money. And they said, just spend an hour just touching this. Once you know the feel of real money, when you touch anything that's not it, you'll instantly know. You don't even have to look at it. You can tell by feel. And they were right. Our weapons to combat deception, it's not that we know every lie and scheme of the enemy. We know the truth. And so in anything that comes at us that's 90% true, 95% true, There'll be that part of us that just doesn't resonate fully. We'll recognize the deception. The Holy Spirit will lead us into the truth. And God has given us a book. He's given us his word. This is a revelation of who he is and how he works. Anything that goes against this, it's not true. No matter how good it sounds. You'll see up there uh, some slides that show some of the ways that the enemy attempts to deceive us with Eve in the garden? Did God really say? 
you can't eat from any of these trees. That's not what God said. He said you can actually eat from every one of them except that one. The enemy tries to twist the words of God. He attacks God's character. You're not going to really die if you eat this. God doesn't want what's best for you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He wants to keep you down. He wants to oppress you and repress you. In the wilderness with Jesus, he actually quotes a passage, and he quotes it right. You can jump off of this steeple because God's not going to let you hurt yourself. He's going to send angels to catch you. He got the letter right, but he missed the spirit. All of those are, and he's still running the same plays. We need both the word and the spirit forming us, shaping us, guiding us into the truth, revealing truth to us, so that when the deceptions come, in whatever way they come, we'll be able to pick up on that. And again, a lot of times it's just this intuitive sense of there's something just not right. You've experienced that before. There's just something not right about that. One of the primary ways I see this playing out now in our culture is around the idea that God is love, which is 100% true. 1 John 4, God is love. But then that we take the step from, well, God is love to, well, if God is love, then we redefine what love is. Rather than letting God define what love is, we say, well, if God is love, then he surely wouldn't want me to stay in this marriage. I'm not happy. Well, if God is love, then surely nobody's ultimately going to go to hell. Well, if God is love, then surely he, as long as two people love each other, it's okay for them to get married. We... Read the, we hear the truth, God is love, but then the conclusions that are drawn from that, they're not true. They run contrary to what he's revealed to us in his word. There's, the ring, there's an element of truth there, but it, it gets twisted. We need the Holy Spirit, and we need the Bible, and we need to be submitted to both if we want to walk in the truth, if we want to arm ourselves against the deceptions that come at us. And they do come. Like, don't, I don't want you to be scared. Like, the, the enemy only has to be right once. We can say no, 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 no. For years and years and years. Just once. Again, don't, you're not walking on a tightrope. There's grace, there's mercy, there's forgiveness. But we want to be people who are aware that there's a one who tries to steal and kill and destroy. And he, he literally is hell-bent on doing everything he can to discourage us, to intimidate us, to distract us, to deceive us away from Jesus, from being faithful and fruitful Christians. And you don't, again, don't be scared. You've got the weapons, the tools that you need, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Bible. That's what you need. Those two things, as you dive deeply into both, praying, show me, Holy Spirit, the places where I'm being deceived. And we all are. Show us. And lead me as I read the Bible. Form me and shape me. I don't get Joshua. Why are you saying kill men, women, and children? That doesn't make sense to me. But I'm not going to toss the whole book. I'm going to ask you to show me how you, as a good and loving God, could command that. And so I'm going to wrestle with that until I get to a spot where I can at least begin to, for it to, to settle it in my own heart. If you struggle with the I don't get why two men who love each other, why can't they get married? That's a struggle for you. You need to, don't 
bypass that struggle. At, say, God, this is hard for me. I don't understand why this is a sin. I don't understand. I see clearly in the Bible it says marriage is between a man and a woman, and I don't understand it. So rather than disagreeing, I'm gonna, we're going to wrestle until we get to a place where that's settled. That's what we're doing here. We've been given the Word. We've been given the Spirit. And they guide us into the truth and reveal truth to us so that we will not be deceived. That's enough of that. Let's pray. That's what I want to do. In a couple of minutes, just we'll, we won't close with a song, just me praying. If you're willing, I want you to just pray a couple of prayers in your own heart. One is this. Holy Spirit, would you show me the places where I'm being distracted right now? And don't be nervous about praying that. Your Father in Heaven is really, really, really good Father. So just ask Him, what's distracting me? What's keeping me from fixing my eyes on you? Whatever comes to your mind, surrender. God, I want to surrender this back to you. Most likely it's something good in your life. Chances are God's not going to ask you to completely walk away from that thing. But maybe just to reshuffle it in the priority list. Again, think about that idea of seeing that thing through the lens of Jesus. And ask him, what does that mean? Jesus, how do I fix my eyes on you? While fill in the blank. Show me how to do that, Holy Spirit. And then second prayer. Holy Spirit, would you show me any places where I'm currently being deceived? Where am I missing the mark? Where am I following after the spirit of this age? Where am I being driven by my flesh versus led by you? There are some difficult truths in the Bible. And it may be one of those that you've just decided not to think about or just kind of said to God, we're just going to agree to disagree. It's not necessarily a great posture to take with him. I would encourage you to re-engage. And so where am I, where am I being deceived? Or, or maybe better, where am I not submitting to the truth? Some of these places where the Bible seems harsh it's difficult when we love people who are bumping up against what we see as some of the severity of the Bible. And it becomes very hard for us to know what to do. And my encouragement to you, if that's, where, if that's the tension that you're feeling, I love people, I, I love this person in particular, and if this statement in the Bible is true, I don't like what that means for this person that I love. Is there a way for you to acknowledge that God loves that person more than you do? He sent his son to die for the redemption of that person. He is more invested in their well-being than we ever will be. 
And so to go to him and to say, this is hard. This is hard. I don't know how to reconcile these things, and I need you to help me. And if, you're, if you can say this, I think it'll make all the difference if you can say it and mean it. And God, I'll submit to you. Ultimately, I'm, you're going to win, not me. If you can go in with that posture of humility, I think God can lead you to a good spot. And if that's where you're wrestling, I'd encourage you to bring all of that to him this morning. So God, would you do that in us? Would you form us and shape us? Make us people of the truth, not people who are rigid and self-righteous and judgmental and legalistic. Jesus, you literally were the truth. One of your names. You're the way and you're the truth. And you were none of those things. So somehow there's a way for us to be people of the truth and to not be Pharisees. So would you show us how to do that? Would you guard our hearts and our minds as we leave this place this week? Would you continue to gird us, marinate us in the truth of who you are and of how you work? Make us aware of the schemes of the enemy, not because we want to see a demon under every rock, but because we want to be alert and aware that he's always trying to lure us away from faithfulness and fruitfulness. In Jesus' name, amen. I forgot, prayer walk, there's a slide there on the screen. Love for you to do another one this week. I know a lot of you did this week. You can snap that QR code. It'll give you some details on how to pray. Two things, how to tear down walls that the enemy has built and how to build up walls that are righteous. So there's some really specific prayer points there. We would love for you to... um, Engage in a walk this week, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever you've got. You can do the same route you did last week, or you can pick a new one. That doesn't matter. We just want you out there praying. And if, you know, some of the stuff that I shared was touchy, and if you're wrestling a little bit with that, please uh, let me know. I don't want you leaving here um, upset or offended. We want to work through uh, all of those things together. Good? All right. See you all next week. Hey guys, I'm so glad you're able to join us uh, for this worship service today. Um, And I do hope this message was encouraging to you. A couple of thoughts that Cole and I wanted to share. Um, One of those was that we can expect opposition when we're moving towards the things that God's led us towards, the good works that he has called us to. There will be roadblocks. There will be uh, times where things become more challenging and even feels like Um, our enemy, Satan, is pushing back against us. And um, I hope this message is really, um, I hope it's really encouraging to you because like Nehemiah, we're to hold on to the things that God has led us to, these uh, good works that he has already created a pathway for us to do to continue pushing into them. Um, Really just one other thought that I wanted to share with you was around this idea of God's truth being above worldly logic. Um, We're called to be faithful stewards of the word. We're called to um, continue to persevere in following after God. And at times there can seem to be worldly logic that 
that doesn't line up with God's truth. And, and above all, we're to follow God's truth. Um, and, and so as you continue to push in and um, uncover these things that the Lord has put in your heart, I would just encourage you um, to hold on to this story that we see in Nehemiah, that yes, the opposition did come and try to tear down the wall. But Nehemiah used strategy, used his uh, abilities to be able to develop a plan that um, pushed back again th against this and see his good works come to fruition. Cole, won't you share a little bit with us? Of course. I think um, I think just a really helpful uh, tool and something that we see as uh, believers, followers of Christ, uh, in order to stay abiding in Him and to be aware of the works of the enemy and fight against is uh, really something displayed that we do corporately at the beginning of services over the past couple weeks in the Behold songs. This idea of sitting in silence before the Lord and uh, just in a posture of worship and um, really uh, not making it about us singing or saying or asking for prayers, but just coming before the Lord humbly and asking Him to fill us up. And I think uh, when we look at Matthew 6, 8, the Lord's Prayer, and uh, you see the portion of it, it says, give us our daily bread, that that is the attitude we should have as believers, is that every day that we abide in Him, that we approach Him in silence in His presence uh, and ask Him to fill us up, for Him to transform us. It's nothing that we can actively necessarily do, but it's a work He does uh, in us and through us that is beyond anything that we can really understand. But... Um, yeah, so just really just a challenge for that, for uh, yourselves and myself uh, to daily uh, seek his help, seek and be obedient to what he speaks in that time. And I think it's just a super practical way for us to engage in that, uh, to engage um, in receiving our daily bread is uh, start off our days um, or pick a time at lunch uh, and read Matthew 6, 8, um, the Lord's Prayer. And uh, to really kind of just dive in, it can kind of seem like a short and simple prayer, but Jesus says, this is the way that you guys should pray. So I think there's a lot there. And uh, so I'll close this out in prayer real quick. Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for uh, what you spoke through David uh, to the body here, Lord. And I pray that uh, what you um, desire for us to take forward into our weeks, Jesus, and apply to our lives, stick to our hearts, Jesus, and fill us up, Lord. Allow us to be obedient and joyful and thanksgiving in all circumstances, Lord. And this is what we pray, Lord. Amen.